Uh, if you were here last week, you know that Pastor Mike and his wife Kelly are actually in Paris this week. So they are eating baguettes and cheese and I'm drinking Perrier. All right. So uh, in honor of Pastor Mike, but someone gifted them a trip. So they are excited for that. So I will be with you today and then again next week. Um, and then Pastor Mike will be back on summer kickoff to launch our summer sermon series. Uh, my name's Rick. I'm actually the executive pastor here at Grace. And so if I have not had the chance to meet you yet or to know who I am, why am I here teaching? Uh, I actually moved to Orlando in 2010 to start a church, started that church on Sunday nights and then began attending Grace on Sunday morning. And at some point, Pastor Mike was like, hey, why are we doing this apart? Let's do this together. So I had the privilege of being the first campus pastor and to launch the first campus out of Grace Orlando in 2011. Uh, And after doing that for a few years, the leadership asked me to step into this current role that I have, which is executive pastor. You're like, well, what is that? Uh, Depends on the day and the week. Um, It is leading the staff and taking all of Pastor Mike's vision and bringing it into reality. So uh, it's a a lot of fun. Um, I am married, have a wife named Christy. Uh, We'll be married 22 years in a few months. And so she, a few years ago, decided to go back and get a master's degree. It's now part of our counseling ministry uh, at Grace Counseling. have three kids. They're 14, 11, and the boss, Lily, we call her. She is six. Uh, and so next year we have high school, middle school, and first grade. So you guys can pray for me. We got them all over the place, all right? But um, super grateful to be here, super grateful to have the opportunity to, to be a part of the teaching team uh, and to work with Pastor Mike. A few years ago, I used to teach a lot. I said, Pastor Mike, I'm done. I'm never teaching again. Uh, so here I am preaching, all right? So uh, we're going to be continuing in Romans 16, though. We're going to be looking uh, at the book of Romans. If you've been here for a while, you know we have been slowly, methodically working our way through Romans. Um, and so we are now at the conclusion of the book. Chapter 16 is the very last chapter. And so I get to preach the final two messages in the Roman series. So um, I do want to just tell you, though, you, uh, if you've ever read the Bible or if you are accustomed to reading the Bible, you know that there are times that you're reading the Bible and it's just so simple. Like, it's just, okay, that's what that means. It's things like, do not lie. Got it. All right. Uh, love your neighbor. Okay, cool. Uh, don't be jealous, right? And, and there's things that when you read them, they're easy to understand, even if they're not easy to put into practice. Like loving your neighbor, I understand what I'm supposed to do, but have you met my neighbor, right? And God's like, that's the point, all right? So it's this wrestling of, I understand, and now I have to implement. Uh, there's other times that you're reading, and there's stories. And you're like, I read these stories. I'm inspired by them. I'm challenged by them. I can extract principles from them. I can see how the gospel relates. So we have the Old Testament stories, David and Goliath, and uh, the kings, and their interactions with people. You have the New Testament stories of Jesus and uh, his life and ministry and the apostles and the work that they do in Acts. And so you're able to read those stories, be inspired by them. Uh, there's times that you're reading things like Proverbs and the wisdom literature. And you're like, okay, great wisdom condensed down into a sentence. Things like... Um, as a door turns on its hinges, so a lazy person turns in his bed. And so you think about that in the morning, like, all right, I got to get out of bed or I'm going to be a lazy person, right? And then there's verses like Romans 16, and you read them, and the most intriguing thing about them is wondering why in the world this is included in the Bible, all right? Um, A lot of times we just skip right over these, um, and so... We're not going to skip over them. Pastor Mike went to Paris and said, hey, Rick, preach on that. So I'm going to preach on Romans 16, all right? And we're going to talk about why Romans 16 is in the Bible, uh, which honestly was a struggle for me. So I was was reading this week, and I'm like, you know, Simon Sinek says start with why. So let's start there. Why is this here? And I will tell you that in asking the question, why is this included, I I think there's some stuff that we can learn from this. There's some stuff we can get from it. And so before I start reading it, I do want to warn you, this reads a little bit like movie credits. All right. Um, now, it's a Marvel movie, so at the end of the credits, there's going to be some more. 
All right, so come back next week because we're going to get the post-credit scene next week. But it is like movie credits. And so I'm just like, how many of you are people that, man, you stay till the bitter end? Like you, you watch all the credits. You hope that there's some more, right? How many of you are those people like, no way, I Googled it. There's no post-credit scene. The credits start and I am out the door. All right, yeah. Same people that leave before announcements in church probably, right? Like I came what I got for and now I'm out. I'm, I'm done, all right? I'm leaving. So I just want you to know this is kind of like a movie credit, but the book of Romans, as you may or may not know, in its original writing was not a book, but a letter. And so the apostle Paul is a leader in the early church. He would go from city to city starting churches, and then he would communicate with them through letters. Now, the church at Rome was not one of the churches that he actually started, but because he is a leader and an apostle and probably the leader and the apostle, um, he is writing and communicating with them. And, And what we're getting now is as he's closing out his letter, he is commending and talking about some of the most important people to his ministry and to the church at Rome and the ministry there. And so he is sending his greetings uh, to these people. And so that's why it reads like movie credits. But if you've got a Bible and you can look at Romans 16, we're going to read the first 16 verses, all right? Paul says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon at the church of Sincre. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of his people and to give her any help she may need from you for she has been the benefactor of many people, including me. So he's like, hey, I commend to you this woman, Phoebe. She is a leader in the church. She's been helpful to me. She's been helpful to many people. She'll be helpful to you. And so he's taking his reputation and he's attaching it now to Phoebe and saying, hey, receive her in the Lord, just like you would receive me. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my coworkers in Christ Jesus. They risked their lives for me. Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. Greet also the church that meets at their house. Greet my dear friend Epinetus, who was the first convert to Christ in the province of Asia. Now, I got thinking, like, this is the first Christian in all of Asia, which is phenomenal. And so then I was like, well, I wonder how many Christians there are today. And so I went and looked this up. There's 383 million Christians in Asia today, but Epinetus was the first. And so he was someone who received the gospel, believed the gospel, and then began to pass it on to others. Greet Mary, who worked very hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my fellow Jews who have been in prison with me. They are outstanding among the apostles, and they were in Christ even before I was. Greet Amplidius, my dear friend in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our co-worker in Christ, and my dear friend Stachys. Greet Apellus, whose fidelity to Christ has stood the test. Greet those who belong to the household of Erastabulus. Greet Herodian, my fellow Jew. Greet those in the household of Narcissus who are in the Lord. Greet Tryphena and Tryphosa. I imagine they're twins, right? Tryphena and Tryphosa almost have to be. Those women who work hard in the Lord. Greet my dear friend Persis, another woman who has worked very hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother, who has been a mother to me too. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegion, Hermes, Petrobus, Hermas, and the other brothers and sisters with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the Lord's people who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. When I was a student pastor, that's every 10th grade boy's favorite verse in the whole Bible. See, Rick, I'm supposed to kiss them. Um, all the churches of Christ send greetings. All right, so we have this list of names, this list of people, and this is a conclusion of people that are important to Paul. And so we read this, and again, why is this included in the Bible? And then why are these individuals, these names, included among the Bible? And if you've been around the church for, again, any amount of time, you have probably heard of the Apostle Paul. How many of you have heard the name Paul before? Like, 
got an idea who he is. Even if you're not part of the church, you probably have heard of him because like History Channel does documentaries on this guy, right? Why? Well, he's an important figure in the church, but he's an important figure in Western civilization because Paul is a person who wrote one third of the New Testament. So we have taken his letters. We have put them into the Bible. We read them today. When you read Ephesians, Philippians, Galatians, Colossians, 1 and 2 Corinthians, Romans, when you read these letters, you're reading the words of the apostle Paul and you're understanding them to be from God and applicable to our lives today. So he's a very important person there. He is also the person that God chose to take the gospel message to the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people. And so Paul's intention was never to be a preacher to the Gentiles. In fact, he was a Jewish man, a very proud Jewish man. Uh, He was a Pharisee, which means he was one of the scholars and leaders of the day. He was on his way to arrest Christians. He was angry that the Christians were there because they were this group of Jewish people that were believing Jesus to be the Messiah. And in doing so, they were disrupting the Judaism that he knew and loved. They were creating problems for him. So he was going to arrest Christians, imprison them, possibly even have them executed so that he could rid the world of this problem of Christianity. And on his way to arrest these Christians, Jesus comes back from heaven in a vision to Paul, blinds him, knocks him down, and says, you will now be a preacher to the Gentiles. And if God comes back from heaven, blinds you, and knocks you down, and says, you're going to do this, you go do that, all right? Like, this is how it works. And so Paul now receives from God, and he hears this message from God, and he begins going from city to city and starting churches. And as a result, in a matter of 300 years, Christianity goes from this small sect of Judaism to become a predominant world religion, so much that Constantine, the emperor of Rome, declares all of Rome to be Christian. Now, you can't just declare something to be Christian, but he does. And so it now has shaped all of Western civilization, And so if we remove Paul from history, we remove everything that we know as Christians because there is no furtherance of the gospel. But what this letter is to me is I think it is a great reminder of what God is actually doing. And look at this. Paul succeeded because hundreds, if not thousands of people, unknown to us and unnamed in the Bible, believed the message he preached, dedicated their lives to Jesus Christ, and sacrificed to build churches and communities of Christians. And this letter to me is a reminder that when we do work for the kingdom of God, whether we are seen or unseen, whether we are known or unknown, when we do work for the kingdom of God, it's actually making a difference. It, It actually matters. Like, it is not just transforming us, it's transforming people around us, it's transforming communities, it's transforming cities, it's transforming culture, ultimately it's transforming eternity. And so while we know the name of Paul, Maybe you heard the name Phoebe before. Like, who is Urbanus and Flujoas? And try, like, what are these names and who are these people? We have no clue. But what I want you to see is that when Paul went into a city and preached the gospel, he eventually moved on from that city. And what he left behind was a small group of people who had radically transformed their lives, who had reprioritized their lives around the church. And in doing so, that began to transform culture. And so if you extract these people from Paul, you don't have Paul any longer. And I think it reminds us of this big idea that God does not build his church through a person, but through his people. God does not build a church through a person. He builds it through his people. Now, if you are at Grace, the most predominant, well-known face and name of Grace is Pastor Mike. In fact, some of you walked in the door, you were here, you were happy, and then I walked out behind the communion table, and you went like, oh, Mike is not here today. All right? That's okay. I still love you. That's fine. Like, that's fine. But I think Pastor Mike would be the first to tell you he is able to do what he does because there is 
hundreds of people behind him doing what they do. And that as we are able to do other things, he is able to focus on the teaching. He is able to focus on preaching. He is able to focus on moving the church forward. And so Paul has this army of people behind him, and God is not building the church through a person. He's building the church through his people. And so Pastor Mike cannot build Grace Church by itself. Pastor Rick cannot build Grace Church by itself. It is the people of God at Grace that are building Grace Church and making Grace Church what it is. We say it's like the sermon begins in the parking lot. As you Come onto the campus. There are people serving, creating an experience for you that you are receiving something from those people. And that is how the church is built. It's not built by an individual. It's not built by a rock star. It's built by the people of God believing the gospel, receiving the gospel, reprioritizing their life around the gospel, and then living out the gospel. And in this list of people, what I love about it is the diversity of this list. Right, so there's 26 individuals named, and let's look at this. There's 26 individuals named, 24 of them are called by name. Now, one is called, you know, and his sister and his mother. Like, they almost got on the list, and then it was like, nope, right? <laughs> if you have an older sibling, you understand this, right? Like, you show up, and it's like, oh, that's so-and-so's sister. That's so-and-so's brother. Like, oh, I have a name, and I am a person, all right? That's what happens here. 24 are called by name. Two missed it. They just got a relationship. All right, 13 had connections to the emperor. Now, this is phenomenal that in the Roman Empire, uh, the emperor was kind of seen as God. And so 13 people with connections to the emperor were like, no, we believe in Jesus, and we're going to further the church even though we're close to the emperor. 13 people, all right, half of them. Nine were women. You can look at that and say, well, that's only nine out of 26. That's not even a third of them were women. Because you need to remember that in the Roman world, women were second-class citizens, that even if they were called to court, they could not testify because here's what it said. Who could believe the testimony of a woman? Like it was confounding to people. Like a woman was not trustworthy. A woman was not someone that could be trusted. She was not someone that could own property. She was, not, she was a second-class citizen. And yet Paul says, no, nine, a third of the list are women. And the first person he names is Phoebe, a deacon. Do and give and support her and encourage her. She's a blessing and a benefactor to many. We have members of the high and low class. We have slaves freed women and freed men. We have names that are Jewish, Latin, and Greek, and even a redhead. <laughs> even redhead. Rufus. You're like, well, how do you know Rufus was redhead? Rufus is Latin for redhead, all right? It's real simple, all right? Um, and if you call me Rufus, we're probably going to fight, all right? So <laughs> I'm a mostly peaceful man, all right? Um, so, But what I love about this is this list is the intentional diversity Paul has in naming people. And it is a reminder to us that when the gospel comes, it doesn't come to a race, to a gender, to a nationality. The gospel is for the entire world, for all people. And I think in a post-2020 world, we've seen all of these fracturings. We've seen people like grouping up and I'm this and I'm not that and I'm this and I'm not that. And everybody's kind of got their people. And you feel like if you have your people, then you have to be against those people. Uh, you can't just be who you are. You have to be against this person and against that person. And what Paul is saying here is like there is a, an identity that we have in Christ that supersedes all other identities, that everything else is secondary and Christ is primary, that Christian is our first identity. And then it doesn't matter if you're a Republican or a Democrat, if you're white or black, if you're rich or poor, you are Christian, you are in Christ. In fact, the Jewish men of the day, they would wake up every day. This is phenomenal to me. But in this time, Jewish men would wake up and every day they would pray this prayer. They would say, dear God, Thank you that I am not a Gentile, a non-Jewish person, a slave, or a woman. Thank you, God, that I am not a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. And Paul, as a leader and as a Pharisee and as a well-known 
Jewish man would have prayed this prayer undoubtedly. Probably for years, God, thank you that I am not a man, or that I'm not a Gentile, a Jew, or a woman. I am a man, all right? Um, <laughs> and so I think that when Paul's writing this list, what does he do? He includes a woman first. He includes a slave. He includes the Gentiles. He later goes on when he writes to some other people, he says, hey, in Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither male nor female. There is neither slave nor free. But in Christ, we are all one. We are all one. And Paul's list, the diversity of the list, is to remind us that the gospel is for all people, but it's also to remind us that the gospel breaks the chains of prejudice that exist in our heart. That as we identify with Christ, there's something bigger and better than any other identity that you have. And it is that you are a child, you are a son, you are a daughter of God, and you have been brought to God through Christ. And so that is a primary identity, and the gospel is what's transforming this. And so that is good for all cultures. It's good for all people. This would be a terrible list if it was just a group of one nationality, one gender, one sex, one socioeconomic class that would say to us, well, the gospel is only for this group of people. No, the gospel is for all people. And so Paul is including it in this. And these were people who not just were a diverse group of people, but they were people who lived out this principle that Pastor Mike talks about a lot at Grace. And it's this, that the church is the center of a Christian's life because Jesus is the center of the church. The church should be the center of a Christian's life because Jesus is the center of the church. And if we are Christians and we are named with Christ, what is important to Christ becomes important to us. And Christ died and gave his life for his church, for his people. And so as Christians, we are called to reorient our lives around the church. And this is what these men and women did. They were people that believed the word of God through the preaching of Paul. They reoriented their lives around the church, and then they gave themselves to the church for the rest of their lives, and they served the church. They're named here because they served the church. Now, how Paul established churches, this is a great, great thing, right? So Paul would go in, and he was a preacher, and as I said, God called him to preach specifically to the Gentiles, the non-Jewish people. So what Paul would do when he would go into a new city, he would go to the synagogue, which is actually where the Jewish people were, and he would preach there first. You're like, well, why would he do that? Well, he was a Pharisee. He was a leader. He had a reputation. And so he would go to the synagogue where he could be received and immediately have an audience. And he would preach and proclaim Jesus as the Messiah and the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament. And every single time, here's what would happen. Some of the Jewish people would believe him and accept Jesus as the Messiah, and the rest of them would get angry. So then they would be like, get out of the synagogue. So he's like, great. So he would go to the marketplace and the places that the Gentiles gathered, and he would begin to preach there. And here's what would happen every single time. Some of them would believe, and some of them would get angry. And Paul united Jews and Gentiles, some of them around Christ, and some of them around hating Paul. And, and that's what says missionary strategy, all right? And so eventually, the people that hated Paul would get so angry that they would start a riot, cause, gather a mob, and chase him out of town. And then he would go to the next city, be preaching the synagogue, preaching the marketplace, start a riot, repeat, all right? It's just how he went. Like, this is the book of Acts. And he would get chased out of town, but in his wake, what he left was this community of people, Jews and Gentiles, rich and poor, slave and free, who received the gospel of Christ, who were transformed, and who then began transforming. In fact, there's a moment when Paul is in Corinth and he's preaching there and this mob comes up and he gets ready to leave the city and God actually says, hey, Paul, don't leave. There are still people in this city who are my people 
And what God was saying to him is that as you preach, these people will convert and become my people. They're not yet my people, but they're here and they're mine. And I need you to preach that they can be called forth. And it says that he stayed 18 months beyond that before then he got chased out of the city. But there's this uniting of people and there's this reorienting of life around the church. And I'll tell you, when you reorient your life around the church, some beautiful things begin to happen in your life. Uh, There's a lady here in the four o'clock service yesterday, and she's told this story many times, so she doesn't mind me telling it. I told her with her in the room. Uh, She talks about how she's like, I attended Grace for 10 years, and I didn't serve. I didn't get plugged in. Like, I came in. I loved it. It was my church. I would tell people to go there. Uh, The preaching was great. The worship was great. Loved every experience. She goes, and then, Rick, you tricked me, and you got me to serve one Sunday. You were like, it's Easter, and we need some extra help. Will you serve? And she goes, and you know what? I've never not served since. I, if I am not on vacation or away with my family, I'm here and I'm serving. And so she drives from Apopka to Winter Park and picks up the donuts at one o'clock every Saturday. She brings them back here. She platters them. She sets them out so that when people come in on Saturday, they can get a Krispy Kreme donut. She makes the coffee. If there's nobody there to clean up, she stays through both services. She breaks down the coffee. She washes the coffee pot. She washes the platters. And then she goes home. And nobody knows her name. And most of the time she's in the kitchen. But she's like, I went from being somebody who just sat and enjoyed to somebody who became part of the family. I went from being somebody on the sidelines, being somebody that actually matters. And not only that, I was now, I'm now able to give to other people what I received for 10 years. And it radically transformed everything about my experience at Grace and who I am. I think that there's so many people going through life looking for joy and for purpose. And I just want to tell you, if you find your joy and your purpose in small things, your joy and your purpose will always be small. If you find your joy and your affection in temporal things, your joy and your affection will always be temporal, will always be fleeting. Your joy cannot be bigger than the object in which you place your joy in. It's just a reality. Like If you're like, well, my joy is my career, that may be great, but that career is going to end one day. Someone younger, smarter, better is going to replace you. You're going to get to the top, and eventually you're going to retire. And if your whole life has been this career, who are you when that career is gone? Like, well, I'm going to invest in vacations. That's like I work 50 weeks out of the year so that two weeks I can have phenomenal vacations. And that's just like I live for the next vacation. I'm pro-vacation. We're going to go to the mountains this summer. Pastor Mike is in France right now. Like, it's great. Someone gifted him a vacation. That's awesome. We're pro-vacation, but if your whole joy is wrapped up in, I'm going to get to go do this thing, it's going to be, your joy will be temporal because one of two things will happen. Either one, you'll get there, and the vacation is not going to be what you expected. Anybody ever had those vacations? It rains the whole time. The kids get sick. You know, you're there, and you're like, this was miserable. I just spent a lot of money, and I should have just stayed home. And it's going to let you down. Or you're going to get there, and it's going to be everything you hoped and more, and then it's over. And now it's just a Facebook remembrance, memory, to remind you every year that you're not there and you don't have that life that you wish you had. <laughs> I go, my, no, I'm, Rick, I'm investing in eternal things like my children. All of my joy is in my children. They call me in 10 years, all right? Because you have these dreams and these plans that they're going to be these things and then they're their own things. And they grow up and they disappoint you and they let you down and they hurt you and they say mean things to you. And you look back and like, they used to be so cute and so sweet. And now they're just like, meh, you know? 
They used to run and greet me at the door, and now I don't even get a hello. So, so if you put your joy and your hope and your love only in temporal, shallow things, your joy will always be temporal and shallow. But if you put your joy and your hope and your love in eternal things, your joy and your hope and your love will be eternal. They will, they will be bigger than and last longer than the temporal things around you. Right? Like God gives us these temporal joys because he's, he loves us. Like he created taste buds and made sugar. So the two could one day meet, and that is joy, right? <laughs> but if all your joy is just sugar, it's gone. It's gone. And so I want you to understand, like, when we call you to invest in the church, it's not because we need you. It's because you need the church. It's not because we need more people volunteering. It's because you need the church. You need to have a joy that is greater than the rest of your life. You can say, well, I'm sure that those people that serve, they just have a lot of free times in their hand. That is not true at all, right? There's, there's a truth in life. If you want something done, find a busy person and ask them to do it because busy people can always do one more thing and non-busy people can't do what they need to do, right? Like that's just how it works, all right? And so people that serve a lot, I'll start talking like they have families and sometimes complicated families and, and big jobs. We have people that own companies and serve in the parking lot. And I'm like, how does that work? Right? We have people that have like high power, important jobs, make lots of money. And one of them told me like, I go to work throughout the week because they pay me really well to go there. Like how many of you, if you got a call from your boss this afternoon and said, hey, be here tomorrow morning, but also we're not going to pay you any longer. That you're going to be like, all right, well, I'll be there. See you guys at eight. Like, no, you're not going to go because they pay you to be there. And so I had somebody literally say, I go to work Monday through Friday because they pay me really well to be there, but I get to come here on Sunday and like set up cones and invest in something that actually matters. And you couldn't pay me enough to be here on Sunday and you can't pay me to keep, like, it's because now I'm contributing to a purpose. I'm contributing to something that is bigger than myself. There's a great pastor uh, in the 1600s named Henry Skugel. And he says this, the worth and excellency of a soul is to be measured by the object of its love. He wrote this at 26. I feel like a failure. <laughs> the worth and excellency of a soul is to be measured by the object of its love. And he goes on to say this, if you love small things, you will become a small person. If you love big, noble, grand, majestic, glorious things, you will become a grand, glorious, majestic, noble person. If you're always focused on small things and your joy is always in small things, here's what's going to happen. You'll become angry. You'll become bitter. You'll become someone that no one wants to be around. That's how it works. Like because those joys are continually failing you. And so you're angry. You're embittered. I had a run-in with a person like this yesterday. Actually, it wasn't a run-in. She chased me down. But um, I'm sure her name was Karen. Positive of it, all right? Um, so I'm a flawed human being. And you just need to know that. And so I was on my way to church to do sound check and get ready to preach. I took a right out of my uh, neighborhood, and then there's a red light. I mean, it was green, but then it turned red. And so it was a green light, and then my phone buzzed, and I looked down, and then I looked back up, and it was red. But I was committed. And I'm like, assess the situation in a nanosecond. There's a gold car here and a black car here. They had not quite started to go because it had just turned red. And I thought, if I break... I may or may not stop in time, and I'm probably going to hit them. So here's what I do. I just, like, hit the gas and hit the horn. And I kind of swerve left and went around. And then my heart's, like, boom, you know, like, beating. And I'm like, okay, that was really dumb. I'm not supposed to look at my phone. My wife has told me this before. She was right. I was wrong. Like, and so then I slow back down, and I'm doing the speed limit. 
And then I look in my rearview mirror and I see Karen in her Camry coming after me. And I thought, you know what, this is going to be awkward if we stop at the red light together. So the light turns red, so I just take a right. I'm like, I can turn right. I go, I'll go the back way. And Karen takes a right. And I thought, she's probably just going somewhere. So then I'm like, I'm going to turn down a side street. Karen turns down a side street. And we stop at a stop sign. I take a right. She takes a right. Get back. And I'm like, there's no way I'm leading her to Grace Church. Like, there's no way that I'm leading her to Grace Church. So I think, you know, if I take this other side street, I could get on I-4, and I can probably outrun her. I'm a fairly aggressive driver. So, and I look up, and she's got her camera taking pictures of my license plate, you know? And I'm like, I just accidentally ran a red light. And you've now given me 15 minutes of your day following me around Orlando. And so finally, I get to this one turn, and I'm like, all right, I'm going to get it ready to go on I-4, and she rolls her window down, and she lays on her horn, and she screams some words that I can't say in church, and she gives me some hand gestures, and I hope she felt better at the end of that. I don't know, right? But, but I thought as I, I was literally like, man, what is going on in her life that me running a red light, I, she wasn't even, I didn't even come close to hitting her. Like, she, she was 30 yards away from me, but I made her so angry that she would give me her time and chase me down and take my picture <laughs> Well, I hope she's talking to 911 because I'm about to be. I'm being followed by a crazy lady. Um, but I thought, man, if we focus small, we will always be small. If your joy is in eternal things and somebody runs a red light, you're like, have a good day. All right, I'm going to go back to work now. Right? Like, it doesn't undo you in those moments. And guys, God wants more for us than to be people who are focused on the small things. God wants more for us than to be people who are always embittered and always angry and always frustrated and always things are... Can I just give you a secret to life? Things in life are broken and they're never going to go the way you want them to go all the time. When they do go the way you want them to go, it's like, oh, that's a nice little reprieve. Awesome. But life is broken and hard and difficult. And so God says, hey, there's a way to have joy here and it's to quit worrying about the broken thing. It's to think about things that are above, things that are eternal, things that are glorious things that are good, things that are noble, because life here will always be hard and frustrating. And what Paul has given us is this list of people who believed this truth. Jesus is the center of the church. The church will be the center of my life. I will reorient my life around the church. And in doing so, here's what happens. If you put church in first and you put church at the center, everything else gets reoriented. Not just on your schedule, but in your heart. If Jesus is central and the church is central, Rick running a red light, not that important. My kids being frustrating, important and frustrating, but a little better perspective on that. My job not going the way that I want, a little better perspective on that. If I retired last year in the hopes that I finally hit that number, that number has been cut in a third. Like, right, it's gone, right? And if my joy is in that retirement number, if my joy is like, those things are going to fail you. But the church is not. And so Paul has said, hey, church is the center These are people that demonstrated that. Ephesians chapter 4, another letter Paul writes, says, So Christ gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, the teachers. If you summarize, well, who are these people in modern language? These are the church staff. God gave leaders of the church to equip his people for works of service. To equip who? His people. Why? Because God does not build his church through a person, he builds it through his people. To equip his people for works of service. So God doesn't give you church staff to do ministry. God gives you church staff to equip you to do ministry. 
so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. God has given church staff, church leadership to the church to help you be people that do the work of God. Can I tell you, God wants to do things in Orlando. God is doing things in Orlando. And his great gift is he's inviting you to be a part of what he's doing. He's like, there's people in the city that don't yet believe, that don't yet know. They're my people, though. And as the people of grace go out into the city and share the gospel and invite them to come to grace and invite them to be a part of the church and invite them into the story of God, he's going to transform their lives. So here's what God does first. He works in you, and then he works through you. And as he works through you, he works in someone else. And as he works in them, he begins to work through them. And so there's this ripple effect of the gospel moving from inside of me to the outside of me. And when it moves outside of me, it moves inside someone else. And so there's this passing on of the gospel. And as I think about grace, I think, man, there are so many people that live this out and that have lived this out. And so I thought as I walked this week, I thought, well, what what would this letter look like if it was written to grace? And so I rewrote the Bible, all right? I don't recommend that as a general rule of thumb, all right? But I just thought, all right, and I talked to the Orlando staff, and I talk, I'm like, hey, what, talk to me about what's going on in your ministries and who's making a difference. And so I just rewrote Romans 16 as if it was to grace. Greet Beth, Liz, Rochelle, Colleen, and all the other women and men who arrive early and stay late, making coffee, preparing donuts, washing dishes to serve the people of grace, along with David, Matt, Chad, and Chuck, who faithfully set up and tear down the guest service stations and tents, along with all those who serve as greeters and ushers, making friends and strangers feel welcome as they enter the church and experience the genuine family of grace. I greet Brenda and Aviana and Michael and Brad and Debbie and all the other faithful volunteers who serve in Grace Kids, rocking babies, teaching children, singing songs, and having fun. Through their service, parents are free to worship and learn, and children are excited to meet Jesus. I greet those who faithfully and joyfully give their finances so that the ministry of grace can advance. Through their sacrifice, physical needs are met, effective ministry continues, and thousands of people have had their lives transformed as they find healing through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Greet those who teach the word of God faithfully, leading classes and groups at the church and in their homes, helping people discover their next step toward Christ and grow in their faith. Along with Tammy and Dana and those who serve in the office throughout the week, supporting these classes and assisting every area of ministry. Greet Donna and Judy and Mary and Adele and the other faithful women of God who prepare curriculum for Grace Kids every week, and by doing so have paved the way for hundreds of children to meet Jesus and be baptized. Greet Andy, the faithful elder who has shepherded the men of grace, calling them to repentance and service. Greet Terry and the other Rick and Joe and Nick and the rest of the men who serve faithfully in the parking lot, doing work no one sees to improve the experience of everyone who enters the church. Greet Kyle and Angela, who opened their home to the Grace Oviedo launch team, providing space to gather, plan, and pray, and who have labored faithfully at that campus for nearly 10 years. Greet Hillary and Michael and Kyle and the rest of the production and broadcast team, whose service is rarely noticed as they create excellent experiences so that people are free to worship and hear the word of God taught in person and online without distraction. Greet Ashley and Chris and David and Jesse and the dozens of singers and instrumentalists who gladly volunteer all weekend long to lead the people of God in worship. Uh, greet Jacob and Dino and Daphne and all those that lead students to make faith their own and to grow in their relationship with Jesus. Uh, greet Pastor Clint and Pastor Grant and the teams they lead at their campuses, transforming schools into spaces for worship service and kids' ministry, expanding Grace's ministry of teaching and healing to new areas of the city and helping hundreds find Christ and grow in their faith. Uh, greet Dave and Kathy, along with Randall, Nancy, Susan, and Jason, and the rest whose prayers have sustained the staff of Grace Church who have faithfully called for the Spirit's guidance and the Lord's protection, who have, through their prayers, healed the sick and brought faith to those who once did not believe. 
Greet all the rest who demonstrate extraordinary servanthood, giving up things they love for the people of God, which they love even more, and through their sacrifice continue to advance the kingdom of God in Orlando. Your church, we walk into a room every week, and there is so much more going on in this church than you see. There is so much more going on than we experience. Like hundreds of hours have been given by people to make this 75 minutes possible. People serving and giving and sacrificing and loving. And to be honest with you, it's not just this week that has happened. It's that for 20 years, people have been faithfully serving and loving and sharing and giving and inviting and praying. Why? So that we can be in this moment as a church that we're in today. And God is doing things in this season that he's never done in grace before. And what he's doing is he's calling those of you that are here to be a part of stewarding this season so that you can hand it to the next, and they'll hand it to the next. Pastor Mike says he has 20 years left of ministry. I'm 10 years behind him. That means I have 30 years left of ministry, which seems like a long time, but it's not. And so for 20, 25, 30 years, we're, we're going to steward this, and then one day we're going to hand this thing off in the hopes that they will steward and they will hand it off. And if we could trace the line far enough, our story all the way back to Paul and Phoebe and these people that were faithfully passing the gospel forward, people that loved the church and loved Jesus more than they loved themselves, who sacrificed and served and gave and said, we're going to invest in the eternal things so that we can have eternal joy and we can hand the important things forward. And so I want to encourage you, if you are not, investing in your life. If you're here and you're just checking us out, awesome. But if you're like, Grace is going to be home, guys, jump in and serve. Jump in and be a part. I've got a list of places that you can serve tomorrow if you want. Probably today if you can pass a background check. But every single team says, hey, we have people that we need. Why? Because there's work that needs to be done. I can't pay enough people to do the work that God wants to do in Orlando. God has so much work for us to do in this city. And what it's going to take is people like you sitting there saying, you know what? I don't know that I can do everything, but I can do something. And God's getting a hold of your heart and saying, I'm going to be a part of the solution. I'm going to be a part of the mission of God. I'm going to advance the kingdom of God in Orlando so that we see God do great things through this church. Let's pray. God, we are so grateful that you are at work in Grace Church. God, that we see evidence and hear stories of how you have transformed lives and transformed people. And God, I pray that as we come to these moments, we would do so with joy, but also, God, we would do so with gratitude for those who have gone before, for those that are serving now, that are making it possible for us to be here. God, you have hundreds of people that serve and give their time at grace because they love you and they love your church and they believe in the mission that you have of helping people take their next steps toward Christ. God, I pray that you would help us to steward this season well, to hand it off to the next generation well. But God, in the midst, I thank you, God, that you have invited us to be a part of work that is eternal and weighty, things that matter. Thank you, Father. Amen.